a Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and here's what's making news this week. Jaden Ojeda and Simon Hodges combined to win the Bathurst six-hour production car race at Mount Panorama. The pair triumphed in a last lap shootout thanks to a late safety car, winning ahead of Drew, Aaron and Wayne Russell and Anton Di Pasquale, Adam Burgess and Anthony Sewell. The top three were all in BMWs. Liam Talbot, meanwhile, made a perfect start to the GT World Challenge Australia season with two race wins in Bathurst alongside Max Hoffer. The schedule for the Perth Super Sprint has been released with supercars to be on track on all three days. However, somewhat unusually, Friday's running will be a single 90-minute practice session. Speaking of Western Australia, West Aussie Jordan Love has landed a Mercedes-AMG junior driver deal for the 2023 European GT season. The Bend has inked a 10-year naming rights sponsorship deal with Viva Energy that is wrapped up in a $1.2 billion takeover of the Shaheen-owned OTR chain. MotoGP has named former NBA boss Dan Rosamondo as its new chief commercial officer. Kiwi Liam Lawson was a winner on debut in Super Formula in Japan, winning the season opener at Fuji. The second race win then went to Tomoki Najiri. And Christopher Bell won the NASCAR Cup Series dirt race in Bristol from Tyler Reddick. Joining me this week to discuss all that and more is a teammate that has risen after three days of well-earned post-Grand Prix slumber, Stefan Bartholomew. Stefan, how was your Easter weekend, my friend? Hello, Andrew. I had a great Easter, although I must admit I'm still seeing BMWs in my sleep after Sunday. Mm. Yep. There is definitely a lot of BMW action when it comes to the six hour. Did you catch much of uh, did you catch much of the race? It was a it was a pretty good race, I thought. Yeah, I did watch it. It's uh, it's a fun race, even though it is dominated by one brand. But certainly, having uh, I think having Marcus Ambrose behind the wheel again was a great storyline for it, and he was able to add a fair bit of value through the broadcast, even after his car expired. But of course, the real story really was Jaden Ojeda. That uh, mm. that six hour has become a great stage for young talent like Jaden to to showcase their ability. It certainly has. That's something that um, we have a chat coming up with, with the commentator and uh, and a great lover of that event, Richard Crail, and we do discuss that a little bit. I mean, I think it is. It was a pretty timely win for Jaden. He's obviously a fantastic talent. We've sort of seen what he's done when he's had wild card appearances um, in the main game, but you know, it's sort of. He's kind of reached that point. He was in the frame for the MSR drive that didn't come off. He's sort of reached that point where I think he kind of needed something like this just to remind everyone what a talent that he is and that, you know, he should be considered when it comes to people thinking about, you know, the next driver that's coming in to supercars. Is that is that a fair point? Do you think it was a timely win in that regard for Jaden? Yeah, hopefully it can help him as he chases that supercars dream because it was a real shame that last year he couldn't afford to keep going in in Super 2 because his career arc to that point was tracking really well through Formula 4, Super 3 and then Super 2. But unfortunately, this is the problem with that feeder class being so expensive that uh, someone like Jaden's kind of stalled out. And yes, he did those couple of wild cards last year, but unless you've got a really unique sort of Zach Best situation, it's, it's very hard to to shine and build something out of those. Absolutely. Well, um, as I just mentioned, nobody quite loves uh, endurance racing at Mount Panorama. 
those races like the Bathurst 12-hour and the Bathurst 6-hour, uh, like Richard Crail, he commentates on both of them. He's heavily involved in both of those events, and I grabbed Crailsy to get his thoughts on the latest edition of the 6-hour, and here's what he had to say. Uh, Richard, calling the Australian Grand Prix one weekend and then the Bathurst 6-hour the next weekend, I would imagine you're pretty knackered right about now, but it did seem like a fairly intriguing weekend there at Mount Panorama. How was it on the ground? AVL, it was good. Yeah, going from the Grand Prix to the six-hour, it's the sublime to the ridiculous yeah. one yeah. way or the other. I'm not quite sure which way, but, yeah, it's a it's a strange one. But, no, look, great event. The, the six-hour is a, a fun event to do, mainly because it is not the highest-profile thing. And I would argue that the paddock atmosphere in the Bathurst six-hour, which is an event geared towards the competitor more than anything else, it is the best paddock vibe in Australian motorsport. It's chilled out. It's relaxed. Everyone's there to have a good time. 90% of the people in that race are there living the dream of racing at Bathurst or racing with their kids or racing with their parents or, in some cases, grandparents. And it just makes it such a really cool, laid-back, relaxed vibe. So after the intensity of Albert Park, it was actually quite a cool laid back weekend to have at a, a pretty epic place. And in the end, it delivered a really cool car race in the end as well. I know the costs have kind of, they have ballooned to go out and win that race. You've got to spend a fair bit to build a competitive outright car these days. But do you think some of that vibe comes from the fact that it's still kind of the achievable Bathurst race to go and take part in for a lot of people, as opposed to the 1,000 yeah. or the 12 hour? Yeah, totally, a hundred percent. I think that's why it works so well. And and you look at you look at the Quins that won the the A two class in their Ford Mustang. So Tony driving with Ryder, his grandson, and Grant Denyer, who's been a long time family friend. But you even dig down further than that in the field. And um, there was a, a a couple from New South Wales, um, Daryl Leslight and his sixteen year old kid Henderson. And they're both motor racing fans. They run a couple of heritage touring cars in, in historic Group A racing, but it's been their lifelong dream to race together at Bathurst. So Daryl's at the end of his racing career, Henderson right at the very start. This was a massive box-ticking exercise for them, and they got to the finish, and they were as happy as anybody who got onto the podium. So it's stories like that. It's, it's motoring journo Tim Robson, a colleague of ours, who'd always dreamed to race there, he'd done drive days. He's driven every supercar in the world, but he, he rolled around in a little BMW in Class C and managed to get on the Bathurst podium. It, it's stories like that that make the race so cool, and while you do have to spend plenty of cash to win it outright, it's probably the same for most car races in Australia, especially at Mount Panorama. But the fact that there's the six out, really, there's eight races within one and it's just as meaningful to win in Class D for some people as it is to win the thing outright. At the front of the field, there were some, you know, reasonably well-established names fighting it out throughout the race. Who were your sort of standouts from the race? Obviously, you know, Juso Jade is an obvious choice. Um, he really did put in a fantastic drive. Uh, to contribute to winning the race. But, you know, there were some great stories like Davo's qualifying effort. Tommy Randall was hustling that little beamer pretty hard. I mean, the Russell family, I mean, that was such a cool thing to see them riding contention across the day as well. Who, who, who or what was the standout for you? Well, I mean, it's hard to go past Jade No Jada and, and the Juice's Bathurst track record has had some challenges along his young journey and his career and th that have been well documented. And 
that that was a bit of a, a coming of age moment, I think, for Jaden in terms of the maturity that he showed in the lead of that race at the end when they were having some field dramas, but in the way that he passed people and was able to work his way through that field early on as well, which was very, very grown up, very mature. I, I think that was the drive that, that Jaden needed for his career and will give him an enormous amount of confidence. What I liked about the outright battle, AVL, was that you get people like Drew Russell reminding how good they are. Yeah. And and probably didn't quite have the opportunity in supercars to show what they were they were capable of, but he was just as quick as Anton De Pasquale or Will Davison or Tom Randall, um, Tyler Everingham in that number twenty four BMW shared with uh, Michael Alden, Garth Walden very nearly got a podium, and that poor kid you wanted to hug him at the end because they very nearly got an outright podium but got penalised for passing under yellow, which I reckon was a very marginal call. Yep. But he drove the he drove the wheels off that thing and he's another young driver that in almost equal machinery was just as quick as a Will Daver or an Anton. So you sort of show the quality of these sort of unheralded kids against some big names and it's another part of the the appeal of this race. Well, when you're talking about your Ojaders and your Everinghams, you're actually talking about guys that are trying to establish themselves and yeah. are using this race now as a way to do that. Totally. Yeah, 100%. And, and it's the Tom Sargent thing from last yep. year where – you know, Tom was behind the wheel of, of that BMW when it started and he handed it over to Cam Hill in the race lead and everyone went, oh, gee, this kid is good. And and yes, what he did in Porsche racing last year was impressive, but you know, Bathurst just brings that extra layer of attention to people like that and, and an impressive Bathurst drive even more so. So I, I think that's part of the appeal. It's, it's, there's so many different stories unfolding in this race. It, it really is the the link back to those traditional Bathurst Enduros of old where, you know, the battle for 58th and last position is just as fun as the one for the race lead. Was there a sense that the reliability of these cars was a little better this year? I mean, even last year we saw so many of the outright contending cars going to limp home mode after a couple of laps and things like that. I feel there was less of that this year. Is there a case of teams just getting on top of how to manage these modern cars and their fancy ECUs and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, I think so. But I think part of it is the the challenge of reliability for this race is part of its appeal. Because if you look at the 1000, if you look at the 12 hour, I mean, the, the 12 hour this year was the quickest race ever staged in Bathurst history in terms of, you know, distance covered in a set amount of time. They rag those cars as hard as they can for the entire race. The 1000 is the same. This race, you can't do that. Yeah. And and I, I really like that. It's it's so different to a modern purpose-built racing car that you can drive at 11 tenths all day. You've got to nurse these things. And probably the ultimate example of that is the, the high-profile Marcus Ambrose Ford Mustang. And ultimately... The, the lesson we've learned is that you can't run a 10-speed auto Mustang in the Bathurst 6 hour because it'll break. Yep. And they've tried they've tried for two years and they've got an hour and a half worth of racing out of it. So expect that thing to have a six-speed manual last year. But that that's part and parcel of it. And and that story of of that car with the auto up against the manual um, that the Quinns and Grant Denny were driving was another cool storyline, two different ways to try and achieve the same thing. And ultimately they've learned that the auto – um, wasn't the way to go. But yeah, that look, production cars are always going to be, you know, tenuous with reliability, especially the modern ones with all the electronics and piggybacked, you know, aftermarket ECUs on top of the, the road car DNA. And But but again, it, it's part of the appeal of the race and it's another challenge that you do actually have to endure an endurance race rather than just sprinting from the, the green flag. So what's the future of this event, Krause? I mean, I, I felt it was a little confusing having that sort of GT4 and production car sprint category 
on at the same, you know, on the same sort of bill as the six hour. Uh, there were some reports on the weekend about a standalone GD4 enduro race at Bathurst that may come mm. along for the Bathurst International at some point. Obviously, we've got this kind of introduction of GT4 into production car racing. How do you see it all shaking out in terms of the future of the six hour? Yeah, it's probably a, a slightly complicated and unclear time for un- unclear is not the right word a cloudy time for it but in, in a way that introducing gt4 is a massive challenge as a standalone category and you couldn't run it on its own with four cars no. you, you're never going to put a four car race on it's not viable it's not appealing to everybody so the the idea around that gt4 and production car race was a, a soft launch if you will for gt4 in australia but still with a field of 20 cars with the production cars that either didn't make the cut for the six hour, didn't want to run the six hour, couldn't run the six hour, still get them an opportunity to get some laps, put a field together, get GT4 out and about, and then slowly build it from there. So GT4 will become its own thing. They're very confident that they will have, by the end of the year, double figures worth of cars. And at that point, it will be able to stand on its own. So running them within the production car ranks, which they'll do this year in the Australian Production Car Championship, it's the means to an end, but it's it's not the destination for them. Their, their end goal is to run on its own as a standalone category. And, and they're looking at a three-hour GT4 Enduro at the Bathurst International in 2024. So it will separate from production cars um, in a short space of time when they've got that critical massive numbers to do it. As for the six out, that will stay a production car race. And and there has been a lot of chatter about whether GT4 would slide in as the outright class. But I think between the GT4 organisers, between the guys that promote the six hour and Motorsport Australia, who ultimately manage all of the sporting and technical regulations around the six hour and production car racing. The The plan is that GT4 will remain a separate thing and that the production car structure will remain as it is. And hopefully that gives people some confidence to go and build some new cars and, and get some things out there. There's new Chevy Camaro coming next year, for example. So things like that. Hopefully someone finds something that can beat BMWs in that race. And uh, I think you'll see that evolve. So it will give it some direction, but in the short term, it's just a little bit of a, uh, um, a bump in the road, not a you know a step on the pathway, I suppose, to establishing GT4 on its own. That was going to be my next question: Is anything ever going to beat these BMWs? Like, what's going to come along and do it? It just they just that that mark has such a stranglehold on this race. Yeah, they're, they're dominant. There's two factors to that. One, it turns out BMW are quite good at building performance cars, um, and two. They're, they're very affordable to buy as a stat write-off. And, and that's what a lot of these teams do is, is go to the auctions and, and buy a car that's been written off and can't be re-registered and then turn it into a race car. And because there's so many BMWs sold, they're, they're affordable to do that, where as what would be a rival would be a, a Merc AMG or an Alpha Quadrifiglio, something like that. Um, there's not so many of them around and they're certainly not as affordable as a BMW. So they're just the best all-round package. They're, they're a quick race car. They've cracked them in terms of the ECU and how to unpick all the electronics and make them work reliably as a race car rather than going into limp home mode every five minutes. So they're just the easiest and most affordable package. I'm sure there's something out there, though, that can beat them. Um, you know, that, that BMW, Mercedes, Audi, R you know, battle in the road car market. Someone, I think, just needs to take a gamble and and build a car that can can challenge them and see how they go. But, um, yeah, right now they're the, the package to beat and the package to have. 
And we thank Richard for his time after a couple of very busy weekends for him doing a lot of race calling at the Grand Prix and the six hour. Well, Stefan, given we finally had a chance to catch our breath a little bit after a hectic start to the 2023 season, it feels like a good time to run a bit of an extended Castrol mailbag. So we're going to run through a range of questions that you sent our way over the weekend. We're going to start off with Steve Thomas, who asked, will Gen 3 survive post Camaro? I mean, it kind of has to, Steve. Uh, Shane Howard told us at the Grand Prix that the timeline for Gen 3 is at least five years, if not 10 years, like Car of the Future, the lifespan of Car of the Future. So, you know, we've got the guarantee of the Camaro until the end of 2025, which will be three years into Gen 3. Based on that, there really has to be a future for the rules beyond that model. Like there just has to be for the future of, of supercars. And there's obviously so much invested in the category and what teams have invested in the category. And with this fresh round of investment in the category to bring these new cars online, I can't imagine everybody's just going to want to give up on it. And, you know, moving that quickly to a new generation of car probably feels a little unlikely given how much has been spent on these cars. What do you reckon, Stefan? Yeah, they're committed to the platform. Everyone will want to amortize those costs. Uh, they've already been spent over more than just three seasons. So the worst case scenario probably is that there is nothing to replace the current Camaro and it continues on for another couple of years beyond 2025, what it's slated for there. Yeah. But as we covered off the other week, once we see what GM is doing for its NASCAR program, that's when we'll have a bit of a clearer picture of what's next for supercars. But in the meantime, surely supercars just needs to find some way to get a third brand involved here to make this whole thing a little less precariously balanced around Ford and GM. Yeah, that is always the issue when you've got the two. You know, it's working when they're both working, but... It just doesn't take much to uh, leave it dangling on the edge. So hopefully there is someone else that wants to come and play ball at some point. Uh, Sean Scott says, or asks, the scheduling of the events this season. There are some massive gaps between some of the meetings this year. Discuss, please, lads. PS, love the pod. Well, we love that you love it, Sean. So thank you for listening. Stefan, your thoughts on the on the scheduling and the intervals uh, for supercars this season? Well, right now, the category and the teams kind of need these big gaps, don't they, to sort some of these issues that they've got going on out here with, with Gen 3. But certainly having the category only racing once a month for the majority of the year, it doesn't help the sport gain any real momentum in the marketplace. And when you're comparing that to a 23 race F1 season or 23 AFL games plus finals, it's very hard to generate that level of interest with such comparatively little product. But yeah, th this is not a new problem for 2023. It's whether you're doing 12 no. races or, or 14, it's uh, it's still an issue when you're spreading that little content over such a large period of the year. Yeah, obviously the 12 race thing does make it worse because it really isn't that much motor racing. And we hear drivers talking about the fact they need to go and do other things because there is no, you know, consistent testing program and then you're doing 12 events it's really not that much time in a race car over the course of a year i mean i think it's always been sort of seen by teams that the three-week sort of interval is about right but yeah i mean the one thing that formula one always did for so many years was just race every second weekend 
You know, NASCAR just races every weekend. You know when it's going to be. You need people to just have a sense of, oh, right, there must be a supercars race this weekend because there wasn't one last weekend or there wasn't one the last two weekends. I think that the the lack of consistency can definitely make it difficult for uh, not just your, like, general sports fans to follow, but your general sports media or whatever, all, all of the different people that you're trying to get to buy into this sporting product and take an interest in it because it helps drive further interest. So, yeah, it really isn't a massive amount of visibility. I, I still think that we're, we're just too thin. I understand teams don't want to spend too much more, but I still think that 12 events just isn't enough. And there's good events that are just not on the calendar. There's tracks that should be on there and it's just – and, you know, I don't actually personally have a huge problem with the idea of wanting to chase the dream of running at the Singapore Grand Prix and that sort of stuff. But we're going to need to get serious about adding some events. 23 might be a bit of a stretch. Um, probably going to work crews a little too hard, particularly after a pretty tough couple of years with the COVID stuff and all that. But I, I do definitely think we need a little bit a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's economics. If there's more money in for everyone in doing more events, they will. But... Unfortunately, I don't think it, it's going to change a whole lot in, in the near future. And in terms of how the year is structured, like it starts and ends with some marquee races that are fairly locked in, like they work in terms of the weather windows they're in and, and being out of the football season. So, yeah, there's always the talk about a summer season or a big mid-season break and try to compact things around that. But, yeah, I think it's just evolved in, into what it is and I don't see it really changing a lot. Yeah, you're probably right. And the funny thing is, and I mean, we had this conversation in Newcastle, you know, let's say that Newcastle doesn't get renewed. You know, we have a lot of circuits sitting on the bench at the moment, your Phillip Islands, Winton, Queensland Raceway, all that sort of stuff. But it's not necessarily that easy to find another season opener. Yeah. Like to find an event that is actually worthy of being, you need the marquee event. You know, we've moved on from being able to rock up at Winton or at Queensland Raceway and go, here's the first event of the season. So in some ways, you know, we've got so many opportunities to be racing here in Australia. And in some ways, when you actually break it down and go, okay, well, let's take Newcastle out of the equation. How do we open the season? That's not necessarily a super easy question to answer. Yeah. And and the other part of the conversation has been around, well, okay, if you only run a certain amount of races a year, how do you put content on those other weekends where the actual show is not on? And some of that was the ARG discussion around whether you sort of complement the two products and they're all on the same broadcaster and all of that or whether they have a reality show or, or this and that. But none of that's really stuck. Like obviously the Speed Series thing's just gone completely its own way and we're sort of back to what we've always had. Yeah, I mean, we certainly haven't heard too much about the whole Drive to Survive style um reality show that the pilot or filming was done for the pilot at Bathurst last year. That has all gone very quiet. So that's quite interesting as well. Anyway, David Routh asks, uh, I was led to believe that the Gen 3 cars were supposed to be less expensive than the previous cars. Listening to Brad Jones and the dollars he is quoting, it isn't less expensive. Can you go into that, please? Sure, we definitely can, David. I think a lot of people were led to believe that this was going to be a lot, a lot less expensive then it has turned out to be cost is absolutely a touchy subject with these cars given, you know, we're talking about a million bucks with spares per car. That's a long way from the initial numbers that were being quoted. I mean, when they really rolled this whole Gen 3 thing out at Bathurst in 2021, there was talk of 350 grand a car, which 
obviously isn't the case. So yes, it's not proving to be a huge saving for the teams yet. Issues like engine fires and the lack of repairability obviously isn't helping the whole thing either. There is still hope in some corners that long-term the expenditure will be amortized over cheaper running costs of the cars, but there's a fair bit of skepticism in the paddock on that front as well. So yeah, cost saving, cost cutting generally hasn't worked out that well in motor racing and perhaps we're seeing a continuation of that trend. Stefan, your thoughts? Yeah, I guess I sort of think about it in a couple of different elements. Clearly, the cost to build a car blew out. The sum of the parts involved in building a car is high, and some of that is seemingly due to an unnecessary amount of complexity. The hope that the running cost will be lower is being eroded a bit at the moment by some issues with durability, but there's a lot of work being done, so hopefully they can get on top of those. The one where there should be savings is in R&D. Because everything mm-hmm. is spec, you're not developing new parts or having to buy the latest Triple Eight upright or whatever. So, even if the cost of turning up each week is high, which is a real issue, obviously for the teams. Hopefully, from a sporting point of view, there's not that divide on the grid between the haves and have-nots, which is really from a from a fan perspective, that's a pretty important part of this. Yep, absolutely, absolutely, and there is, you know, there are some signs that we could definitely see that in terms of you know once we get a better sense of the raceability of the cars where the field sits and all that sort of stuff you know it's uh there is there are through the doom and gloom there are definitely some positive signs from gen 3 there's no doubt about that uh darren whittington uh says how much do support categories have to pay media companies to have racing shown without interviews of drivers in the main event so i assume darren you mean the supercar support categories and what they pay to get tv coverage that comes with being on the supercars bill. So as far as I know, there isn't an itemized media component to what a category pays to be on the supercars bill, but obviously it is part of the cost. It's part of what a category pays to be there. Uh, that fee or what that fee is depends wildly you know, on the event, the TV time that comes with it. Some categories run in the morning before the broadcast starts or only have one or two races on live TV and a range of other factors. Um, you know, I don't think you're getting much change out of about 25 grand at the very, very, very bottom end in terms of what it's going to cost to take a category um, to a supercars event. And it's then up to the categories how much of that gets passed on to the competitors through the entry fees uh, and all that sort of stuff obviously you know your toyotas and your porsches they're built to be you know profitable customer businesses so those costs get passed on to the competitors to come and take part in it and then the whole thing kind of uh kind of makes sense anything to add on that Stefan? yeah i think part of darren's question here seems to be making a point about the fact that broadcasters sometimes interview drivers from the main show whether that be supercars or the bathurst six-hour competitors during support races so that that's that sort of thing makes sense from an overall sell your main product tv point of view but it's certainly cheeky when a support category is paying for airtime and that is being interrupted by interviews from another category yeah yeah no i uh i can sort of take that point and look i don't they're they're I can't imagine that's actually part of the negotiation. Like if you pay more, we won't show an interview with a main game driver while your Aussie racing car race is on, for example. Mm. But um, yeah, it's definitely a, 
it's a tricky. I guess it, it's always the risk of, and we we saw supercars on the receiving end of that at the Grand Prix. When you're not the main show, they're the little things that are going to come along uh, and be problematic. Whether it's scheduling or whatever, at the end of the day, whatever the main show is, is what's going to get the priority. Um, and I guess there has to be some acceptance to that. Um, and the flip side is again, the exact discussion we have about supercars being at the Grand Prix is that it's important for categories to be on, on this bill. And it's important for young drivers to have the opportunity to compete on that stage. And you sort of take the crunchy with the smooth. <laughs> uh, Kieran James Welsh asks, uh, I'm trying to find out if triple eight ran dual rear springs on the ZB in 2018, the year before the Mustang came out uh stefan i reckon they would have been at least dual springs if not three or four springs right there were some pretty complex multi-spring deals kicking about uh at that time before they were banned for 2019 yeah i can't say that i have access to the triple eight uh, setup sheets from the day but certainly multiple springs were ubiquitous in that era teams were running two or three springs and a bump stop so yeah effectively four springs on each corner of the car and the twin spring stuff had been around since blueprint days, but it became more prevalent with Car of the Future because the rear axle was a control design. So teams like Triple Eight ended up pouring more and more resource into things like springs and, and the damper package as well before the springs went linear in 2019 and the control shock came in for 2020. It's hard to say how much of an impact the spring rule change had in 2019 though, because obviously that Mustang just turned everything on its head. I'm sure, Andrew, yeah. you remember that conversation we had with Scotty McLaughlin at the preseason test in 2019 where he tried to tell us that all the speed uh, was actually in the in the spring rule change and aero had nothing mm -hmm. to do with it. Yep, that was – there was lots of – I also remember uh, also remember uh, Dr. Ryan's story selling us a, selling us his yarn of how unprepared they were and how much they were going to struggle in Adelaide and um, – didn't quite work out that way. Anyway, uh, Aaron Split asks, what does Castro oil taste like? Uh, it's quite nutty on the nose, but surprisingly buttery in its finish, Aaron. Thank you for that very serious question. Uh, Steve Blade says, do overseas drivers need a super license for supercars? Stefan, you can take this one. Well, you've given me all the good jobs here, super license. Yep. Uh, the the yep. basic answer here, though, is, is yes, they do need a super license, but if you're a gold or platinum level driver with the FIA, You'll, uh, you'll be granted one without any dramas. And, and Grove Racing's enduro signing, Kevin Estra, is a pretty good example of that. Yeah, and I think, you know, you can actually generalise it and say if you're an overseas driver with some profile, you'll get signed off no matter what, whether you actually strictly meet the criteria or not. Everything is at the discretion of Motorsport Australia and supercars. And if you're someone that can bring value to the race, whether it's on track or off track by nature of your profile – you're probably going to get the big green tick and be allowed to go racing. Yeah, so the tricky part then is is someone like a Joey Mawson who's raced overseas, he's got international experience, but he's only silver rated. Yeah. So he still needs to jump through those hoops, um, yeah, and, and hope for some leniency. Yeah, and he's not seen, obviously, as someone who's going to put bums on seats, which is no offence to Joey, but no one's going to come walk through the gate to come and watch Joey Mawson race at the Bathurst 1000, whereas a really high-profile overseas driver will do that. And rightly or wrongly, Supercars has the power to go, cool, that's good enough for us. Let's sign this off and, and get this guy or girl in a car. I'm certainly glad that uh, 
the road licensing isn't uh, done the same way based on who can bring the most entertainment to the show rather than who's competent to actually uh, that, drive a car. That would be pretty sketchy. That would <laughs> definitely be pretty sketchy. But anyway, if we get started on super license, Stefan, we could be here for a very long time. So <laughs> let's not go down that path anymore right there. We will do a super license episode one day, just dedicated entirely <laughs> to it. Anyway, Julie Jones asks, why is the podium at Bathurst not bigger? Fits one person on each step fine, but more than that, it is squishy. It does seem a bit squishy. I had literally never thought about this before. I guess, you know, podiums are usually just built for one person to stand on, but the Bathurst podium should be made to accommodate more than one driver. The big the big days are all about multi-driver crews. Have you got any idea why, why it is like that, Stefan? No, I don't have any idea on that, but if they're uh, looking to fix it, they may as well put the second and third place steps the correct mm-hmm. way around because yep. uh, that's my bigger issue with it is that uh, second and third are on the wrong sides of the winner. I did see I did see someone send that through, and that is also a very good point. Something I hadn't necessarily noticed, but yes, you're right. It is once you see it, you can't you can't unsee it. All right, John Hurry, why wasn't anyone rating Brody and Erebus before the Oz GP? Well, that's definitely not the case, John, because Stefan, you picked him, Brody, as your big winner heading into the Gen 3 era, and that seems like a very good shout so far. Even if you take any lingering parity doubts out of the equation, Erebus has come out swinging with these new cars, even against if you just put them against the Chevrolet teams. Um, and while there's not much between Brody and, and Willie B, it is Brody that has taken the win so far this season. It's actually quite interesting. I was having a conversation with someone at the AGP about you know, who will sort of drive the driver market next time there's a real top seat available. You know, for example, if Shane Van Gisbergen did decide to go and do something else in the not-too-distant future and Brody's name came straight up, um, it seems that he is kind of really circling that group of absolute A-graders now and he's seen as, you know, he's cementing his position as as the next big thing in our category and the next must-have driver. Stefan, you can begin your gloating now. <laughs> well, to be fair, I wasn't the only one calling this preseason. There was a bit of noise out of those uh, test days that Brody had the Gen 3 car pretty well sussed pretty quickly. And there are even some suggestions out there that he was going so fast that it might be unhelpful to everyone else running a Chevrolet. <laughs> but Erebus did well to sign him up last year for 2023 and 2024. I feel like they deserve to get a return back for the investment that they made to put him in there in the first place. And clearly it's working both ways as well. Like the engineers at Erebus have done a better job than most at finding a setup window with these cars and they've rolled them out across a few circuits now, including the testing and been quick at all of them. So uh, they deserve some of this credit as well. All right, last one. Corey Carroll is asking if all supercast teams have ordered a spare car, and how quickly will teams be getting them? Uh, Stefan, you can you can have first crack at this one. Well, it's a good question, and it's important to emphasise that it's not about ordering a spare car that'll turn up at the workshop with wheels on, yep. ready to go. Like teams are either ordering a pre-built chassis centre section from Pace Innovations and then they complete it from there. Or in the case of a Triple Eight, Erebus, Walkinshaw, they just buy a kit of parts and build the whole thing themselves. So I believe Pace has produced a bunch more centre sections for its teams. And I know Triple Eight has started on two cars in-house, which would be its own wild card and then the Addison car. 
So the spare car topic is a work in progress across the board, but I'm sure there's a few teams out there that um, are a little more exposed than they'd like to be um, at this point. Particularly when the cars do seem to break fairly easily. Uh, before we move on from our Castrol mailbag section, thank you for the overwhelming response to our rule change shout out on the socials over the weekend as well. We'll start going through them and rolling them out next week because there is some absolute beauties there. So keep an eye out uh, for that over the next couple of episodes. Alrighty, Stefan, let's hand out some Castrol stars of the week. Mine is going straight to Tony Quinn. Uh, he was a winner in a GT4 car on the weekend at Bathurst and won the A2 class in the six hour alongside his grandson, Ryder and Grant Denyer. Uh, it's a heartwarming outcome given how badly injured he was in that nasty Porsche crash in Townsville last year. So he gets my Castrol star. Who's getting your Castrol star this week, Stefan? That was a good pick, Andrew. The uh, the six hour does produce a lot of great stories, and my star of the week is going to the Russell family, namely Wayne and his sons Drew and Aaron. Uh, for them, second outright, I think was a great job, and Aaron held his own there at the end against some really star names, and it was just cool to see those guys be able to share the podium, no matter how uh, squishy it might have been up there. <laughs> Ah, very good. Well, that's it for this week. Remember to like, subscribe, and review our work wherever you listen to your podcast. And we'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport News.